Today we continue our series on what is church. We started it two weeks ago by framing church as discipleship. That to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, was never meant to be a solitary journey. It was never meant to be a a lone wolf here. It was always meant to be in the company of others, in the company of the church. But we have to ask then, well, what is church, right? And church is the called out ones. It doesn't mean this building. It means the body of believers. It means the people. Well, if it is the body of believers, it is the assembly, the called out ones, then what's the actual foundation of the church? The foundation of the church is Jesus Christ himself. He is the solid rock on which we stand. That's what the church is built on. It is built on Christ and him alone. And then we had to ask, well, well, now what? Okay, so we're the church. We're gathered together. Now what? What do we do? So what are the essential functions of the church? And last week we took a look at the essential functions as teaching and fellowship. See, teaching is what the apostles did again and again and again. They talked over and over. They preached about the fundamentals of Christianity. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Now, some of you might be familiar with the Pew Research. Very well-respected survey that goes out. Last year, they did a survey, and the survey had this. They asked people, what parts of being a Christian are essential? Now, if you have your sermon notes, you can certainly uh, work on that. I'd be curious what you would write down. What would you write down are the essential parts of being a Christian? Here's what they did in the poll. So in the poll, they actually gave them six different aspects. It's a little small on there. I'll read them off to you. Believing in God, 86% said that was important to be a Christian. Why is that not 100%? Right? 86%. And by the way, yeah, I'll just go through it first and then we'll talk about it. Being grateful for what you have, 71%. Forgiving those who have wronged you, 69%. Being honest at all times, 67%. Praying regularly, 63%. Working to help the poor and needy, 52%. Committed to spending time with family. I'm just going to read them without the percentage now. Reading Bible religious material. Attending religious worship. Not losing your temper. Helping out in your congregation. Dressing modestly. Working to protect the environment. Living a healthy lifestyle. Resting on the Sabbath. Buying from companies that pay fair wages. Yeah. So when I read this, one thing is, I was disappointed that the Pew Research put these things down as essential parts of being a Christian. What's missing from there? Jesus, right? What's essential to being a Christian? Jesus is Lord and Savior. But the thing is, most people have taken Christianity to mean if you are Christian, you're nice. 
Now, if you look at all of these things on here, a lot of those things are about kind of being nice to other people, right? Look, on the day of Pentecost, in the early church, the apostles taught again and again and again and again the fundamentals of what it means, what's essential to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. So they taught this. They taught the lordship of Jesus Christ. And when I say lordship of Jesus Christ, I mean the fullness of his deity, who Jesus is. They talked about the bodily resurrection, that Jesus, remember, he died and then he rose again on the third day in fulfillment of the scriptures, just as he said he would. They talked about and taught about that you are a sinner, before a holy God and that you are saved by grace through faith in him alone. And they also talked then about his second coming, that he would come again. Now there's more than this, but this is an encapsulation of what they talked about, the fundamentals over and over and over again. This is why we talk about Jesus, the solid rock, the foundation on which this church is built again and again and again, and we should never tire of that. Because I have to tell you, if that's what people answer out in the world, and by the way, that, that survey went out to self-identified Christians, so people said, I'm a Christian, not the, the general population. But if people have those answers, they've missed the boat. So, teaching, sharing of the gospel, essential function of the church. The other was, was fellowship, right? And we talked about that last week, that fellowship is much more than just coffee and food, although that part of it, right? I don't want to take that away. But it's much more than that. It's about knowing each other and helping each other out. It's about asking for help even when you don't feel like it. It's about giving, for, giving help and serving others. Sometimes even when you don't feel like it. There's a fellowship together. Two essential functions of the church. Now, we, this morning, we are going to go into the other two functions. The essential functions of the church. The breaking of bread and prayer. I'm going to refresh ourselves reading our reading from Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling the possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added by their number day by day those who were being saved. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread. At a casual glance in reading this scripture, it would seem to be that the apostles like to eat. You know, they gathered together and they had bread together. But there's a lot more going on into that simple phrase than meets the eye. If you take a look at the language, first of all, the original language in a literal manner would say the breaking of 
the bread. That one little word, the. It talks about a specificity. Just as Peter confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Life. That one little word, the, makes something very specific, doesn't it? And so when we read this in context and we study Scripture, we understand this to be the Lord's Supper. When it is breaking of the bread, it is the Lord's Supper. Now, to understand that, however, we've got to put some context behind it. I've got to put some context because a lot of that context is lost nowadays in the church. The Jews of the day would have understood this much more readily than we do now. So let's put some context behind it. The Lord's Supper, also known in the secular world as the Last Supper, the last meal on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus instituted a new covenant. But this covenant traces its roots all the way back to the garden and shows the fullness of God's promise from Exodus. Now, see, they were having the Lord's Supper was, do you remember? It was a Passover meal. They were celebrating the Passover. But what's the Passover? That knowledge has been lost a lot in our churches today. Well, to understand that and the fullness of God's promise, you have to go back to the Passover. The Passover, we find this in Exodus chapter 12. If you remember, God sent plagues upon the Egyptians. Do you remember that? To let the people go. Pharaoh said, no, 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 yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, no. God continued to send plagues. The last plague, if you remember was to be the death of the firstborn in every household. The death of the firstborn in every household. But God said, If you put the lamb's blood on the doorpost, I will pass over your home. Do you remember this? Okay. So the Old Covenant meal, the Passover meal that God instituted, that God said you need to commemorate. So Exodus 12, verses 14 and 15, this day shall be for you a memorial and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So when they put the Lamb's blood on the doorposts, God passed over their homes. They did not die. They had life. That was the Passover meal. So now let's go to the Lord's Supper because they were celebrating the Passover meal. Matthew 26 Starting to verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, 
Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the Passover lamb who was sacrificed so that death would pass over us. And he gave a new covenant for us, which the fullness of the Passover covenant from Exodus. And it is through his body and through his blood that we have forgiveness of sin. Through Jesus' body and his blood, there is forgiveness of sin. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, talks about this a little bit more so we get the fuller understanding yet even more. He said, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Now, we've got the language there. Participation shows up twice. It's an interesting word. It actually translates as fellowship. Or you could even say communion. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are in fellowship with each other through the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have communion with Christ. We have communion with each other. What closer communion could we have with each other than through the body and blood of Christ Jesus? So here's the main point. One of the essential functions of a church is fellowship or communion through the body and blood of our Lord Jesus, which is given to us for the forgiveness of sin. Through his body and through his blood, God has passed over us, and we have life. In his small catechism, Luther summarizes the purpose of the Lord's Supper under this question, what is the benefit of eating, of such eating and drinking? He's saying, okay, so what's the benefit of the Lord's Supper? That is shown us by the words, given and shed for you for the remission of sins, namely, that in the sacrament, forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation are given to us through these words. For where there is forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. Now, we have to remember it is through God's word with the bread, with the wine, that we receive the forgiveness of God. It imparts grace to us because of God's word. This is my body. This is my blood. And I want you to highlight. I want you to hear this for you. Put your name in this. This is my body. This is my blood, which is given for you. When you come to the Lord's Supper today, hear those words for you. And what is given for you is forgiveness of sin, and we call that grace. Isn't that not grace? 
Forgiveness of sin is grace. That's why we call the Lord's Supper a means of grace, a way by which we receive forgiveness of sin. Luther, in, a small, in the large catechism, says this. He says, therefore, it is appropriately called food for the soul, for it nourishes and strengthens the new creature. That's why we have the Lord's Supper, and that's why we celebrate it. We don't do it as a mere rite, some empty thing that we do, some obligation we come up and do it. We receive it, one, because the Lord has commanded it. We receive it because it is a means by which we receive grace. And therefore, we are strengthened in our faith. That's what they did. That's what this means when it says the breaking of the bread. Now let's talk about prayer. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Just as the breaking of the bread is specific, so it says the prayers. So it would seem to say that it had some sort of um, maybe a little bit more formal or temple-type prayers that they were praying. What I find interesting more than anything is that, you know, before Jesus died and rose again, so while Jesus was among them, you don't find the the apostles praying much. You find examples of Jesus praying. As a matter of fact, what happened in the garden, right? Jesus is praying and he's praying and he's praying for hours. And what did the apostles do? They fell asleep, right? But after he rose, after he ascended, boy, did they pray. They prayed constantly. So, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 14. And all these with one accord were devoting themselves. Remember, devoting, steadfast, unwavering, and swerving. Devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. You find the encouragement, the, the, the admonition to uh, pray constantly. Romans chapter 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Ephesians chapter 6, 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Prayer was essential to the apostles, to the early church, to the fellowship of the church. They would pray Sometimes for hours. You know, there are some people, uh, certainly in persecuted churches, they begin with a half hour or an hour of prayer. Period. They start there. Churches in America, if you've got more than like five, six minutes of prayer or squeeze it in, or you've got a really full schedule, let's skinny down the prayer time, right? Right? We do that because we don't see prayer as essential to who we are as followers of Jesus. We are to pray together because it is part of our worship. Prayer isn't just this thing outside of worship. It is worship. 
So worship is turning to God in awe, praise, and joy. Prayer is a natural part of worship. To know God is to want to worship Him and pray to Him. Now, you go through the Old Testament, too. You find examples of prayer after prayer after prayer. Uh, I'm just going to give one example here. First Chronicles chapter 16. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of people, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. This is a call to worship. This is a call to pray together. Let's just put it this way. In marriages, by the way, couples that pray together, it is shown, have a much, much stronger marriage. And they stay together because there is a fellowship together between a husband and wife. Churches that pray together, stay together, and grow together. That's what we do. We pray. Now, if any of you remember Nehemiah, we had that reading from today. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Before he went into action, before he did anything, he prayed. So in your bulletin, if you want to turn back to it, if you've got your Bible handy, you can turn to Nehemiah. Nehemiah, it's the very beginning, chapter 1, starting with verse 4. So what happened? Here's the context. Nehemiah had just been informed about the destruction of Jerusalem, the exiles of Jerusalem, and he was heartbroken. And I'm going to read the whole prayer because it is a wonderful example of prayer. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, have not kept your commandments, the statutes, the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though, though your outcasts are in the outermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand, O Lord. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Can you, can you hear just Nehemiah? He's been weeping. He's been fasting. He is heartbroken. And he pours out his heart to the Lord. You know, some of you say, well, I, I can't pray like that. I, I can't use those big fancy words. I, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm stumbling around. 
Look, that's fine. God isn't grading you. God isn't grading you on how fancy your prayers are. God isn't saying, are you praying in the King's James English? No, he's not doing that, is he? He says, come to me, be in communion with me through prayer. So I'm going to give you, in your sermon notes, I'm going to give you a way to think about prayer. Prayer often follows, not always, but often follows a certain pattern. A certain pattern. And it's with the acronym ACTS. And it starts off with A, adoration. Adoration is praising God. Thank you, God. Praising God for how wonderful he is, how steadfast in his love he is, how marvelous his creation is. Thank you, God, that I have the breath to breathe today. So adoration. You could all start with adoration, right? That's pretty easy. The next one is C for contrition. Remember, 1 John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So tell him, God, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I lost my temper this week. I'm sorry that my heart has been hardened toward that particular person. I'm sorry I've been lax in my relationship with you. Forgive me, Heavenly Father. You could do something like that, right? And the next one is thanks. Thanksgiving. See, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Thank you, thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me in my sins. Thank you for passing over my sins, for covering me with your righteousness. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. And finally, supplication. Supplication is another word for requests. Say, what, what, what are you asking of the Lord? Again, you can be specific. Tell God what you would like, no matter how small it is. See, a lot of people, they start with adoration and they go right to supplication. Kind of like making God a big uh, vending machine in the sky. If I put enough quarters in and I pull the lever, I will somehow get what I need then. But no, that, that's not it. It's to lift up in adoration, contrition, thanksgiving, and then what is on your heart. So this morning we prayed and and part of the prayers were simply straight from what we've been praying in the bulletin, the back page. We just prayed. So all of this, brothers and sisters in Christ, is about worship. The basic functions of the church are, are teaching, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. And when you put it all together, what did they do in the early church? They worshiped. To worship our Savior is to give him thanks and praise and glory. And we, we pray through the Holy Spirit that we may glorify Christ, to know him as Lord and Savior, to be in fellowship with him so much that we are in fellowship with one another, to stay true to his teaching of who he is, to partake of the Lord's Supper, and to pray together as a body. 
This is what it means to be church, the essential functions of church. So, here's my request this morning, my supplication. You cast aside whatever doubt, whatever fear you have, and be hungry for the Word. That you turn and actually see each other, not as members of the church, but brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. That you have that fellowship together. That you have fellowship at the Lord's table and we pray together as the family of Christ. Amen.